You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Colossians chapter 2, as we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, or ushers will be happy to bring you one. But up to this point in our story, we have defined supremacy is that person or thing who in your heart or mind uh, surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. In other words, it's that person or that thing in your life that you give permission to have authority over you. Now, in chapter one, Paul has been arguing that the only person that should ever have that level of authority is Jesus Christ. In chapter two now, Paul is giving us a warning Last week we saw that there are these rip currents of false teaching that would seek to drag us out into a sea of confusion and a doubt in the supremacy of Jesus Christ and in his sufficiency. Now this week what Paul is going to do is he is going to dismantle and dissect the false teachings that were common in his day. If you follow along with me as I read aloud, I'm just going to read the summary verse in verse 8, which pretty much summarizes the entire chapter. Paul says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Title of today's message is the same as last week, guard your faith. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I ask and pray that you would help us by opening our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, that you would open our ears to help us to hear your voice behind the messenger. And God, that you would open our hearts to receive the message that you have for us today, that we would respond by faith and in obedience to the supremacy, the preeminence, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, which all God's people, (laughs) in the name of of all God's people who prayed. Amen. (laughs) If you're familiar with Greek mythology, you may be familiar with what are known as the sirens. The sirens in Greek mythology were um, these mermaid creatures, beautiful creatures that would lure sailors in with their siren songs, these beautiful, soothing captivating hypnotic songs. They would lure these sailors in, and though they were beautiful in appearance, as they would lure the sailors in, they would lure them into their doom. As the story goes of Odysseus in Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus was warned of these sirens that laid in the path that he was taking on his journey to where he needed to go. And so Odysseus, being a wise captain of his vessel, decided, I need to protect my men. I need to make sure that somehow they are not seduced by the siren songs that would lure them away to their doom. And so what he did with these men is he filled their ears with beeswax so that they could not hear the siren songs. And for himself, he wanted to hear the siren songs, but he didn't want to be lured away, so he had his men strap him as tight as they could to the mast of the ship, so that when they passed the sirens and they sang their seductive songs, they were not lured away and utterly destroyed. Now, I share that to say this, that our enemy 
has many sirens in this world that still sing their seductive songs today. Do you believe that? The seductive songs of our culture that would seek to lure us away from our confidence in the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And like Odious in the Odyssey, chapter 2 is our warning of the false teaching, of the siren songs, and the gospel is our protection. That is, that is the gospel is the beeswax for our ears and the rope that keeps us tied to the centrality of Christ. And so today what Paul is going to do is he is going to unpack these four major categories of false teaching in his culture. And what we're going to do is see the implications in our culture. But I will admit right away that this is one of the most difficult and unique passages in all of scripture that I've ever tried to preach. And so what I need you today is to do this. Whatever distractions you have had from your week, you need to put out of your mind. And as they say in the Blues Clues, put on your thinking cap and think, think, think. Amen? So let's begin by getting some context. As I mentioned in verse 8, Verse 8 is a summary statement of this entire passage, uh, chapter uh, uh, 2, verses 8 through 23. Now, in verse 8, it says this again, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits, and not according to Christ. Now, take a look again at the very beginning of the verse. See to it that no one takes you captive. That is, in other words, these four categories of false teaching, their goal at the end of the day is to take you prisoner, to kidnap you, to hold you hostage, and to destroy your faith, your confidence, and the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Your enemy today is a tireless enemy seeking to destroy not just you, but your faith and your confidence in Christ. And so we must understand that these songs that are sung, they are sung with the intent and the purpose of destroying your confidence in Christ. Now we see the tactics here in verse 8, that the goal is to take us captive, and how do they do that? Well, they do it by philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and according to these elemental spirits. Now what does Paul mean by all of this? Well, philosophy in and of itself is not necessarily bad. Philosophy simply means a love for wisdom. Now, how many of us love wisdom, all right? Even the Proverbs tell us that we are called to love wisdom, and philosophy is wisdom applied to life. It's our worldview. It's how we see life, how we view God, how we view ourselves and one another. But what Paul is saying here in this text is he's not condemning all philosophy, but he's saying that there was a philosophy in the Colossians context and in our context that directly attacks the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. There is philosophy in our world, a worldview that would tell us that Jesus is not sufficient to save, that Jesus is not sufficient to know God, that Jesus is not sufficient to transform and change your life. And that is the philosophy of the text. So the first tactic was to use human philosophy. The second was that they would use or trick people with empty deceit. Like the siren songs, all of these philosophies, these teachings, there's an attractive element to it, right? That's how they, they gain an audience is there's, something tra- there's always something attractive about a lie, 
right? That's why you give into it. That's why you believe it. She's like, oh, this, this sounds really good. When, when you put bait on a fish hook, you're lying to the fish, telling them, hey, come on and get something. This is going to be really good. And you hook them. That's exactly how it works. I remember years ago, um, it was around Easter time, and I went out, I was at Target, I was getting some candy for my girls, and I saw this big, massive chocolate Easter egg, uh, Easter bunny. And I thought to myself, oh man, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna splurge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat myself, right? I'm gonna get this big chocolate Easter bunny. It's gonna be so delicious. It was massive. It was like this big. Just massive piece, chunk of chocolate. And I got it home. I got all of the candy out to my girls and they were so excited and they were eating all this stuff. And I finally crack open my Easter bunny and I bite into the ear. And what do you know? It's hollow. It was completely empty. I was so discouraged. I was so like, what is this? And that's, that's the essence of this teaching, is it promises something beautiful, amazing, glorious. In the end, it's empty and deceptive. Are you tracking? Are we? Not only that, here's the other tactic: it's philosophy, empty to see, according to human tradition. In Paul's day, tradition carried a ton of weight. In Paul's day, anything new was viewed with a high level of skepticism. So in Paul's day, Christianity, which was the new kid on the block in terms of religion, was faced with a lot of skepticism from people. And so the question became, what are we going to trust? Are we going to trust human traditions that have come up through the years and have stood the test of time and lots of people have trusted in this stuff? Or are we going to believe in the revelation of God given to us through Jesus Christ himself? It's an issue of trust. At the end of the day, when it comes to your faith and your confidence, it's all an issue of trust. Trust in this book and what God has revealed to us. That is the base question. Human tradition, and here's the other tactic, according to the elemental spirits of this world. Again, by introduction, we just have to understand that all four of these categories of false teaching are influenced, and I'm going to do some interpretation here, by the elemental spirits. That is the kingdom of darkness. That is our enemy, Satan and his forces. These teachings are influenced by none other than Satan and his armies himself to deceive us and lure us away from Christ in his sufficiency and supremacy. So with all of that said, would you like to know what those four teachings are? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at all four of these Um, over the next two weeks. And all four of these teachings in the text attack the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And here they are. First of all, it's called Gnosticism. Not agnosticism, which is a belief in some kind of God, but Gnosticism. Legalism. uh, I'm sorry, mysticism. And finally, asceticism. Now, I know what some of us are thinking probably right now. You're thinking to yourself, wow, this is really top shelf stuff. Some of these words I've never heard, and I'm not sure what any of this has to do with me. And all God's people said, yeah. yeah." Well, here's the thing. What Paul is doing here is he is laying, I mean, chapter three is where all the fun stuff's at. Like that's practical life, right? But what Paul is doing right now is he's laying the theological groundwork for how we live our lives. And if we don't go through this and have a firm understanding of the theological groundwork, we're not going to be able to live out our lives in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Amen? Amen. 
Okay, so let's walk through these one at a time. What we're going to do today is we're actually, we're going to look at Gnosticism, mysticism, asceticism. We're going to skip legalism, not because we don't want to address it, but because it's such a big topic and it impacts the church so deeply that we're going to leave that for next week. And we're really going to bite into that stake, okay? But point number one is this, Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an attack on the sufficiency of Christ's ability to save us from our sins. In other words, Gnostics would teach that Jesus Christ was insufficient to save us and make us right with God. This was based on the philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle, and was based on this teaching that spirit is good, matter is evil. Are you tracking? Spirit is? Spirit is? Matter is? And therefore, if God is spirit and he is good, he would never send Jesus in human form because that would make Jesus evil. Therefore, when Jesus came, he wasn't really a human being. Therefore, he wasn't a sufficient sacrifice. Therefore, he wasn't a sufficient savior. Therefore, you're still stuck in your sins. Are we tracking? Okay. So let's back up a little bit, right? <laughs> I told you this is going to be, if it gets too carried away, if you, if you need to say slow down, tell me to slow down, okay? Verse 9 says this, for in him, the whole fullness of deity, that is God's divinity, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, what Paul is doing here in the text is, this is fascinating, What Paul is doing is he's addressing his opponents, but he doesn't tell us who the opponents are. So what makes this chapter difficult is it's like you walk into a courtroom and Paul is is addressing the opponent, but you walk into the middle of the examination and you don't know who he's talking to. Do you know what I'm saying? And so in this text, we have to figure out, he's already in the middle of his argument against Gnosticism, but he doesn't give the song a title. So we're giving it a title. It's called Gnosticism. And here's why he says this in verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. And what he's saying is this. At the moment in which Jesus was conceived, God filled Christ with the fullness of his deity. In other words, every single inch of Jesus Christ at the moment of conception was both fully God and fully man. That is that God himself not part of God, all of God, who is three and one, this is where it gets really tricky, filled the person of Jesus and became a man. Amen? This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. But what that means is this, Jesus was fully God, fully man, and here is the promise of Jesus' ability to fill a human body with the fullness of his deity. Look at verse 10. Here's the promise for us. You have been filled in him. That is that your body has been filled in him. If you are in Christ and you have placed your trust in him, that is deity will fill your body in the person of the Holy Spirit just like pouring out water into a glass and you fill it up, you are filled with the presence of Christ in your body. And all God's people said, huh, why is all of this important? Now let's go back to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the teaching that matter is what? Evil and spirit is good. And therefore, 
Gnostics would say anything done in the body, even the grossest of sin, has no real meaning because real life does not exist, because real life does not exist in the physical plane, but only the spiritual. In other words, this is Matrix Theology 101. This is Matrix Theology 101. By the way, they're coming out with a Matrix Part 4, and they're bringing Neo back. I don't know how they're going to do it, but that's what they can do in the Matrix because no one ever really dies because you're not actually real because you're just an avatar that lives in, a, in an immaterial world. It's, it's like playing a video game. Gnostics teach like you're, you're an avatar in a video game. I love playing video games online. It's so much fun. I don't do it very often because I have four kids. Pray for me. I need a lot of help. But every once in a while to get my sanity back, I go and I play Call of Duty and I kill a bunch of people because that's, I don't know, somehow keeps me sane. Does that sound weird? It sounded weird as it came out of my mouth. Anyway, but you get what I mean. I get online and I have this avatar and this avatar represents me and I walk around in this world and I interact with other people who are online, who are sitting in their living room somewhere else in the world, but they're controlling a character that I'm engaging with on my TV in an artificial world. And Nasik says, that's who you are. You're just an avatar. Somebody else is running your life here while you are here on earth. Does, does this make any sense? Well, not really, but, <laughs> but do you see how this theological bedrock would have massive ramifications on how we lived our life if it were true? Let's think about it theologically. If your body isn't real and you're just an avatar, okay, well, then Christ wasn't real. And that would mean that if Christ's body wasn't real, he didn't really suffer on the cross for our sins. If he didn't really suffer, then he didn't really bear God's wrath and judgment for our sins, which means if he didn't really bear the wrath for our sins, that means he really wasn't a sufficient savior, which means if he wasn't a sufficient savior, we're still stuck in our sins, which means if we're still stuck in our sins, then this whole Christianity thing is a sham. Do you see the implications? But not only that, there's practical implications. Because if your body isn't real, then it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't really matter if what your eyes see or your hands touch or your mouth says or your ears hear or your feet go or your mind thinks or your heart feels or your sexual organs do. None of it really matters. Now, what Paul is doing here is he is addressing two key critical issues here in the text. He's addressing our theology our understanding of who God is, but he's also addressing our anthropology, our understanding of who we are. And what he's saying is this, if you get your theology of God wrong and you get your anthropology of who you are wrong, that will have massively destructive implications in your life if you get these messed up. For instance, if your body isn't real, is what was, Paul, what was taught in Paul's day, then your life has no meaning. At the end of the day, check this out. If your body isn't real, you don't have any real meaning, significance, or purpose in this life. But conversely, if God isn't real, that there is no deity, because that's what's taught in our day, then there's no consequences to what you do. Amen? Like, if there's nothing on the other side when we die, where is the consequence in anything we, we do? Is there? So then, the end product of both these philosophies of thought about life is it doesn't matter what you do. 
So it doesn't matter if you cheat on your tax. It doesn't matter if you steal from your neighbor. It doesn't matter if you cheat on your spouse. It doesn't matter if you abort, abort an unwanted child. It doesn't matter if you shoot up a school. And do you see the implications of these philosophical thoughts thread through our society now? How mass shootings are on, I, I think they're on the rise, but I don't know. There's debate on the statistics, but I, it, I, it seems to me like they are. Do you see how things, anyway, here's the point. The reality of body and spirit, both made by God, infuse every inch, every moment of your life. Every choice that you make, every action that you take, every attitude in your heart with eternal weight and significance. What Christ did in his body matters because it affects your eternal address. And what you do in your body matters to God because in the end, he's not just going to throw your body out. He's going to raise it from the grave. And that body will spend an eternity in one of two places, depending on what you do with Jesus right now. Do you see how Gnosticism is important still today? Okay, here's the second siren song then is mysticism. We're going to find this in verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. Let me do this for you first. The, the essence of teaching of mysticism, which is kind of a kissing cousin to Gnosticism, is that Christ is not sufficient for you to know God. In other words, you can kind of know God through Jesus, but you can't really know him fully. So you need other supplemental material to know God. Now, I find that in verses 18 and 19. Check this out. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The siren song of mysticism is that Christ is not sufficient for us to know God. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I like fitness. I enjoy staying active. I like um, going to the gym. And so some of you who are here, uh, who uh, I have met at the gym, you know that I like to get to the gym and spend time there. I like to stay engaged in fitness and activity. I'm trying to fight off the dad bod, and I feel like I'm losing that battle right now, but um, I'm doing my, guess, my best. But one of the things that I've learned is that throughout the years, when it comes to fitness, you can't just exercise to be healthy. You have to eat what? You got to eat healthy right? Abs are made in the kitchen, so they say, and I'm way off. And what am I trying to say here? The reality is in the foods that we eat in this day and age, Bevan, are not sufficient to give us all the nutrients our bodies require. Therefore, that's why this supplement culture has been created to supplement the nutrients that your body needs in order to be healthy in this life. Now, why do I say all that? Because the false teachers here were saying, hey, Jesus is like your main diet. If you want to know who God is and you want to have a relationship with God, like Jesus is the main diet, but you're not going to get all your nutrients from Jesus. So you need to supplement with these other vitamins in your life. Look at what it says in the text. 
says in verse 18, first of all, you need to supplement your diet of Jesus with this thing called asceticism. Asceticism. In other words, if Christ isn't sufficient to know God, how do we get God's attention so that he'll reveal himself? Well, we punish our bodies. That was asceticism. We punish our bodies to prove our worth to God so that he'll reveal himself to us through these visions. Now, Elijah, you remember Elijah in the Old Testament? Elijah in the Old Testament, when he was on, I think it was Mount Carmel, and he was fighting with the prophets of Baal. Do you remember how that engagement went? So here's Elijah on one mountain, and he's representing Yahweh God. And here's the prophets of Baal on the other mountain. They're representing Baal. And they're saying, okay, we're going to have a little contest. We're going to set up a little altar here. And whoever's God can set the altar on fire first. Their God's the real God. Their God wins. So Elijah is just standing there. He's waiting while all the prophets of Baal, they start doing their song and their dance. They start praying to God, but nothing happens. So they start crying, and then they start weeping, and then they start yelling. And Elijah's on the other mountain. He's like, hey, guys, maybe you should yell a little bit louder. Maybe your God's taking a nap. Maybe you can get him to wake up if you just start. And so what do they do? They get more and more frantic and, 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 and excited, and they eventually start cutting themselves until the blood flows. Why? They're trying to get their God's attention by punishing their body so that their God will reveal themselves or himself to them. Are we tracking? That's asceticism. You might say, well, do people still do this to this day? And I was honestly trying to think through this. Like, do I really know that there are people in our culture today that still struggle with asceticism? And my mind immediately went to some of the teenagers that I had in my youth group years ago who struggled with cutting, who would cut, and I, I would, you know, as I would meet with them, and they, they would have just countless scars on their arms. And I would ask, why? And I just remember this one girl telling me, because I just don't feel like God's paying attention to me. And you see how this has crept into even our children's lives, that this stuff is real and practical. So if you want to get God's attention, if you want to really know God, well, you got you to punish yourself and you got to treat yourself really harshly and then God will pay attention. Here's the other vitamin. It says here in verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and then worship of angels. Now, it's nothing new in our culture that um, people have a tendency to worship angels. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, any time an angel would appear, people would typically do what? They would they'd fall to the ground and just utter abstract worship. Um, but if you go all the way to Revelation chapter 22, um, an angel appears to John in the very last chapter. And what does John do? John falls on his knees and starts to worship the angel. And this is not uncommon. This happens all the time because we think, man, if I could just get a vision of an angel or an encounter with an angel or some kind of spiritual interaction with some kind of spiritual being, I'm going to get a glimpse. I'm going to get some kind of knowledge of God that I don't already have through God's revealed word. And this is so common in our culture. This is why we are utterly obsessed with angels. Here were just a couple of examples of our obsession with angels that I wrote down this morning at 5.45 a.m. I mean, think of shows like Touched by an Angel. Right now, there's the show Lucifer. 
uh, preacher. Um, there's some show uh, on, on Netflix about uh, Jesus as, well, I'm not going to even go to the details. Supernatural, City of Angels, Angels in the Outfield. It's actually a pretty good movie. And as all of this is, what's baked into this is this sense that if I really want to know God, I need something more than Jesus. But notice what John said. When John had that encounter with the angel in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, what did the angel say? When, G, when, when, bought, when John bowed down to worship the angel, he said, stop. I'm just like you. I am a fellow servant just like you. My only goal, my only responsibility is to protect this book. He said his job, the totality of that angel's job was to make sure he guarded the words of this book. Why? Because everything we need to know about God is revealed to us already right now in this book. That's awesome. Which means this, this special, mystical, higher knowledge that only a handful of people, LeBrons and Jordans, ever get to touch it's, it's not for the elite. It's for you. It's for me. It's for everybody. Everybody can be saved. Everybody can know God. You don't need a vision. You don't need an angel. You don't need to punish yourself. But look at what else it says here in the text. Um, verse 18, let no one disqualify you in on asceticism, worship of angels, going into detail about of visions. And of course, this is common in our day. We get people who claim all sorts of visions, uh, giving us glimpses into heaven and hell and angels, you know, things that, of course, nobody else saw, but they saw, right? So 23 minutes in hell, 90 minutes in heaven. And these are very, these are the best selling books on Amazon. In fact, John MacArthur was saying, that there were 12 books written within the last decade on people who went to heaven and saw heaven. But here is the interesting thing about all 12 of those books. None of them agreed on the, the bare essentials. But why do we have this? Why do we have this obsession? Because we think that Jesus isn't enough to fully know God. People have an insatiable appetite for the supernatural. Psychics, mediums, fortune tellers, palm readers. Crying out loud, you can go to Target right now and get a Ouija board. Extreme charismatics claiming that they have a new revelation from God. The church out in California known as Bethel. Some of their songs are great, but their theology is terrible. Saying that they have a new revelation. Well, Paul actually puts his finger on what is motivating people who say, hey, we, we've got a special insight to God. You ought to follow us. Because, I mean, hey, if you've got a special insight to God, you can, you, can get a, you can gain a following, can't you? Like a big Twitter account, lots of followers on Instagram, get a book deal. Amen? Anybody? Why do they do it? Well, here in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on a set of worship angels going into detail about the visions, puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. What does it mean to be puffed up? They're proud. They're proud because no one else has the knowledge that they have, and they know you have to go to them to get it if you want it, which makes them special, which makes them exciting, which makes them cool, which makes them the rock star. And at the end, what are they trying to do? It's because they have a sensuous mind. It's all driven by selfish gain. 
So what does Paul say here in the text? His conclusion is, verse 19, hold fast to the head, Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, you and me, and everybody in this world who calls themselves a Christ follower is nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. Hold fast to Christ. Christ has revealed himself in his word. He is a sufficient source of knowledge, authority, and nourishment for our souls. Amen? And finally, the siren song that we want to look at this morning is asceticism. And asceticism teaches this, that Christ is not sufficient to change us. Anybody else in here just, I want to change, I don't know how. Anybody else in here, I want to change? These teachers, these ascetics would say that Christ is insufficient to help you do that. So you got to do it yourself. Now look at what it says here in the text. Asceticism is a do-it-yourself religion. Now in verse 20 it says, If if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Now, I love do-it-yourself projects in the house. I mean, anybody else here with me? Like, I love it when I'm able to take a project, like fix a window or, or fix a crack, or I got I this, you know, we got a van and somebody in it, scrape the whole side of my, and I love being able to just like, I want to be able to fix that because I can save money and I have the pride of being able to know, hey, I took care of that. Anybody else with me? I love do it yourself, okay? But the reality is when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, when it comes to personal change, we can't do it ourselves. But asceticism is a do-it-yourself religion. By following a rule, a list of rules of do's and don'ts that aren't commanded by God, you can earn his favor, win his acceptance, and change yourself. So how do we get God's attention? How do we get him to give us what we want? How do we make ourselves more acceptable? How do we change ourselves? Well, verse 21, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. We wrap ourselves in the bubble wrap of our own rules, we create a purity bubble, we pull away from the world, and all of a sudden we think we're going to be okay. Does that ever work? And so asceticism forces us to ask a couple of very, I think, clarifying questions. Write these down if you're taking notes. Asceticism, which is still common in Christianity today, and asceticism is very similar to... um, self-denial, but the motives are different. Asceticism is driven by a desire to get God to give me what I want. Self-denial is driven by a desire to, to demonstrate, to work on your confidence and trust and dependency on the Lord because he is worthy. Do you see the difference? So this forces us, asceticism forces us to ask a couple of very um, interesting questions. If we're not to handle, not to taste, not to touch, all of these things, then are we to label evil what God has called good? Are we to label evil what God has called good? Look again at verse 21. It says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But 
First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 tells us that God has created all things for us to, to set aside, to resist, or to what? God has created all, for us all things to enjoy. So church, food and drink and sex and money and comfort and pleasure, these are gifts from the Lord, amen? These are gifts from the Lord. And what this text tells us is this, these are not things that are meant to be shunned so that we can somehow become more spiritual. Neither are they things that we should enslave ourselves to because they are not God. Rather than being shunned or enslaving, we are to take these gifts, we are to sift them and steward them toward their proper use for the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) When I go to a Morton's, which does not happen often, or Capitol Grill, or a, oh, Fleming's, oh, and I get a steak, I get one of those prime, or not, not, what was was that one that we had when when we went there together, brother? Do you remember, Huh? The tomahawk, it might have been that. I remember I was trying to shave off tiny little pieces I could because I just wanted to savor that steak. That was a gift from the Lord. Amen? Amen. And God is telling us that is not to be shunned, but at the same time, we were not to enslave. It is to be sifted and stewarded for the glory of God. Intimacy with your spouse is a gift. Friendship with a brother or a sister in Christ and having fun together and going axe throwing and shooting clay pigeons and doing all the silly stuff that we, that is a gift from the Lord. When you go home this afternoon, after I go home this afternoon and I crash on the couch because I'm exhausted and my kids are climbing on me and I try to take a nap for just 20 minutes, that is a gift from God. You don't shun that. You don't enslave yourself to it. You sift it. You steward it. Because the point of the gift and the sifting and the stewarding and their proper use is to give the giver glory for all his goodness to us. We don't deserve his gifts, but when he gives them, we say, thank you, God. Asceticism. No, 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 no. But it asks, forces us to ask um, a second question, that's question number one. Are we to call evil what God has called good? Question number two, does change happen from the outside in or the inside out? Now, in this text, Paul is not condemning maintaining personal moral standards. Many of us have different moral standards when it comes to the gray areas of life, when it comes to things like alcohol or TV or secular music. But Paul warns us here in this text that rules in the home do not ensure obedience in the heart. In other words, you can set up all the rules you want in your life, but that isn't the thing that's going to change your heart and make it want to obey God. Rules possess a very attractive quality. Because it makes us think that we can shortcut our way to holiness 
If I just check off all of these boxes and I do exactly everything that I'm supposed to do, then of course my heart must be perfectly tuned with God. But what did Jesus say himself to those who were called the Pharisees? He said, you acknowledge me with your lips. You check your boxes, but your hearts are far from me. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, one of the great thinkers of our time, said himself that he tried to, before he came to Christ, establish all of these rules and regulations in his life to battle the lust that he had in his heart. He actually would pull away from the world and isolate himself, but he found in the confines of his isolation that his lusts weren't left out there in the world. They followed in with him because they were lodged in his heart. You see, change doesn't happen from the outside in by the things that we put inside, but it happens from the inside out as the spirit of God lives within our hearts. Look at verse 22 and 23. Referring to verse 22, oh, 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity of the body. But they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And final question is this. If you can save yourself by merely keeping a bunch of rules, if you can change yourself by do-it-yourself religion, then why did Jesus need to die? Paul tells us here in this text, and he affirms this in verse 19, Hold fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together in love through its joints and its ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. Paul affirms in this text that we have no hope of being saved. We have no hope of knowing God. We have no hope of personal growth and change if it's do-it-yourself religion, our only hope is in Jesus Christ. He is sufficient to save you from your sin. He is sufficient to help you to know God. He is sufficient to change your life. And Jesus is enough. So I ask you this morning, What siren songs are seducing your heart right now to convince you of the contrary? How do you need to plug your spiritual ears with the beeswax of the gospel so that you are not seduced? Our Father, we love you, and we are so deeply thankful for the good news of the gospel. Father, we recognize that there's so many ways in which this, our enemy in this world, seek to seduce our hearts from the simplicity of Jesus. God, you have made it so simple. This world wants to make it so complicated. 
A relationship with you is so simple. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. For salvation, for growth, for relationship, it all happens through your son who died and gave himself on that cross that we could be free. Father, thank you for the simplicity. Thank you, Father, for his supremacy. Thank you, God, for the sufficiency of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.